How have you enabled your loved one's alcoholism? And what is enabling, anyway? How do you know when you're doing it? Welcome to episode 261 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Tony, Susan, Paula, and Mary. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Tony, Susan, Paula, and Mary, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me today is Eric. Welcome, Eric. Uh, good morning, Spencer. Welcome from nice, chilly morning in Connecticut. Uh, I don't even know what it's like out today. I just you know, got up, take a shower, made coffee, sit down, and record the podcast. I haven't even really looked outside. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's crispy and nice here, finally. Yeah, I think I think I looked at the thermometer. It's about 60, so it should be a nice day. Mm-hmm. I think we're supposed to hit 80. Nice. So you have a a reading, I believe it's from Courage to Change? Yeah. So this is on uh, January 5th. I was terribly confused about the meaning of, quote, compassion when I came to Al-Anon. I thought it meant making excuses for the alcoholic, covering bad checks. Al-Anon helped me to find another word for this behavior, enabling. I learned that when I cleaned up the consequences of alcoholic behavior, I enabled the alcoholic to continue drinking comfortably and acting out without having to pay the price. A more compassionate way to respond to those I love might be to allow them to face the consequences of their actions, even when it caused them pain. How do I know whether a particular action is enabling? Well, this is not always clear. I find it helpful to look carefully at my motives. Am I trying to interfere with the natural consequences of a loved one's choices? Am I trying to do for someone what they could do for themselves? Am I doing what I think is best for me? Do I resent what I'm doing? If so, is it really a loving choice? Sometimes the most compassionate thing I can do is to let others take responsibility for their behavior. Today's reminder. Today I will remember that I have choices, and so does the alcoholic. I will make the best choices I can and allow others in my life to do the same without interference. And the quote from Alan Faces Alcoholism. I must learn to give those I love the right to make their own mistakes and recognize them as theirs alone. Good one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I just want to comment on that reading. Yeah. You know, we've used this reading in no less than two other episodes. There's so much in there. Uh, (laughs) We did it, you know, we did an episode on motives. That's mentioned in here. Mm -hmm. Consequences. That's mentioned in here. Choices. That's mentioned all three of those. Resentment. I mean, this one's loaded, and I think you and I have actually done every one of those episodes together. Hmm. Motives, resentment, choices, and consequences. Amazing. How did you find that? <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, it's got like five different highlighter colors and like t- tags, ah. and do- dog-eared, and, you know, I've got uh, Shut Up written on this page. I've got Live and Let Live. I've got Handle, you know, Let Go, Let God, Outcome, No Expectations, you know. Wow. I mean, this could apply to about 
you know, 20 different subjects, but enabling is certainly buried in there pretty, pretty prominently. <laughs> I, I was like, wow, you've got some kind of concordance of where we've used to reading and stuff. Like, yeah, it's right there on the page. Okay. And every one of them circled and in a different color. Yeah. So pretty easy. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So definitions, what do we have for definitions? So what was interesting was when I looked up definitions on the, on the internet, in Merriam-Webster, for example, we have definitions like to provide with the means or opportunity. The example is training that enables people to earn a living or to make possible practical or easy. The example is a deal that would enable passage of a new law to cause to operate. And the example is software that enables the keyboard. And that those were all like sub-definitions, one, and then two, to give legal power capacity or sanction to, the example is a law enabling admission of a state. So those are all sort of positive definitions of enabling. I think it's also the, the traditional definition. This is actually the definition of enable, because enabling is not a separate word in the dictionary. They're all good. Sounds great. Okay. Then Urban Dictionary actually has enabling. Their definition there is shielding a person from the consequences of a destructive behavior, allowing a person's destructive behavior to persist by managing or minimizing the ill effects of the behavior. And that is the way that we understand the word enabling in this program. That's the way we're using it in this particular podcast, right? Right. And no scrabble points. Yeah, I could. I, I thought, well, I could sit down and figure it out, but let's see. Well, One, two, three. <laughs> you actually know this. That's so sad that you actually know this. <laughs> I, well, I know the words with friends points, and I think they're pretty much the same as the Scrabble oh, points. Seven, nine. yourself a life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if N is one or two, though. Uh, wow. <laughs> well, you know, the point being that, you know. In, let's say 13. Much, I think it's 13. Uh, right. uh, we'll go with that. <laughs> Yeah, the point is, you know, when I first likewise looked all this, um, looked this up in the common places we typically have looked, it was all about the positive attributes of enabling, enabling, you know, someone to achieve something, make possible. But, you know, that is not obviously the way we're looking at it, or it could be actually there are, there are things that uh, we do that enable uh, ourselves and our recovery. But I think more the emphasis on this episode is for the negative attributes of what happens when we do try to enable or control or fix for other people, you know, their problems, their issues, and take it on as our own. That's kind of where we're going with this one. Yeah, and I'm I'm reminded that sometimes words have both positive and negative. I think it's in the reading for Step 10 in the book Past Recovery. It talks about judging versus judgment that judging people judging other people is generally a negative attribute right it's it's something that can cause us pain can cause the other people pain if our behavior changes when we judge them but having good judgment is a positive and these are just different aspects of the same thing and i think that's one of the confusions about enabling that i find is that i can enable good stuff I can make it possible for good things to happen. But if I take that too far and I start trying to make negative things not happen that are the natural consequences of somebody's actions, that's when I get to this negative definition of enabling. And I like that that 
Urban Dictionary goes on and talks about enabling versus empowering. And I think empowering captures more of the positive aspect of the word, and it helps us to separate the two concepts when we talk about it in program. When we say don't enable, we don't mean don't empower, right? right. We mean don't get in the way of somebody being able to do something themselves, whereas empowering means giving the person the, the the capability to do it themselves. And so, again, they say enabling, supporting a person's behavior that repeatedly or habitually instigates a negative or destructive result. Lots of big words in that thing. Yeah. Empowering, supporting a person's ability or effort in a positive or progressive endeavor. So they actually have negative in the first one and positive in the second one. Enabling can be as destructive as the behavior itself. A person enabling a destructive behavior is motivated by their need to do so and is gratified by reinforcing their superiority or control over that person. Whoa. Yeah. A superiority or control. Did I feel that way? Um, I'm going to take the fifth on that. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I would, I would likewise say, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I was just yeah. trying to, uh, grab a lifeline and try anything possible to stop the crazy. And, you know, I like and to maybe to, to put a finer point on this. I love the Wikipedia version of these definitions. I think this really puts it in perspective, both this one and the reading from psychology today. This one is just the definition from Wikipedia. So in psychotherapy and mental health, enabling has a positive sense of empowering individuals or a negative sense of encouraging dysfunctional behavior. So they list positive. As a positive term, enabling is similar to empowerment and describes patterns of interaction which allow individuals to develop and grow. These patterns may be on any scale. For example, within the family or in wider society as enabling acts designed to empower some group or create a new authority, usually governmental body. Negative. In a negative sense, enabling can describe dysfunctional behavior approaches that are intended to help resolve a specific problem, but in fact may perpetuate or exacerbate the problem. That's where we're headed here. A common theme of enabling in this latter sense is the third parties to take responsibility or blame or make accommodations for a person's harmful conduct. The practical effect is that the person himself or herself does not have to do so and is shielded from awareness of the harm it may do and the need or pressure to change. Mm, I like that, shielded from the awareness of the harm. Yeah, you know, consequences. Yeah. They, they're shielded from the consequences. Yeah. And it, this goes on to talk about alcoholic and addict enabling. The spouse may attempt to shield the addict from the negative consequences of their behavior by calling in sick to work when they're over or Yep, binding or binging on substances, making excuses that prevent others from holding them accountable, generally cleaning up the mess that occurs in the wake of their impaired judgment. Yeah, haven't we been there? Absolutely. Stopping enabling isn't easy, nor is it for the faint of heart. I love that. Aside from likely pushback and possible retaliation, you may also fear the consequences of doing nothing. So, you know, all really good stuff. I think the point is when we don't know the difference and haven't thought about the difference between enabling and empowering, it gets confusing and it is subtle. And, you know, when are we helping and when are we actually hurting? I used to feel that I was helping by trying to, you know, throw out the pillow before someone fell, my daughter. 
mm-hmm. you know, feeling that I could just love my alcoholic sober. You know, just it was codependent. It was, you know, taking the medicine to, to solve someone else's disease. That, in my mind, is enabling. Mm-hmm. Not having boundaries is enabling. Saying yes when we mean no is enabling. The biggest one, and this is comes back and back and back in a lot of the quotes that will follow, doing for something what they're perfectly capable of doing for themselves. That, to me, is kind of sums up enabling. Let them do it, whether it has a good or a bad result, and let them experience the pain or the pleasure of whatever their behavior was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, I know that my understanding of enabling really changed as I started working the Al-Anon program. And, and I don't think I even had this concept of enabling before I came into the program. And then I started hearing this, you know, don't enable your alcoholic. I'm like, what the hell does that mean? You know, it's like, don't buy booze for them. Okay, that one's pretty obvious, but what else? And so I wonder if you can reflect a little bit on how you came to understand what enabling meant for you in this context. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking about it, and I'm still thinking about it. I mean, I, I shared the last couple of meetings on the subject and, and heard some good things, but not quite mine. I mean, I didn't, you know, enable in any literal sense, like buying alcohol. Once I was living in the disease, you know, I was doing the opposite. I was dumping it down the drain, <laughs> you know, throwing the bottles, you know, out and even like corkscrews would I would throw away. You know, it, it, it's ridiculous and crazy to think that that was going to stop anything. What I think my version of enabling was to pick up the rope. My alcoholics fertilizer was conflict and provocation and chaos, and I would buy into it. I would play the game, you know, take the bait. And that enabled her disease to flourish. Mm-hmm. You know, the alcoholic's disease thrives on chaos, conflict, blame, resentment, anger. And, you know, I've said this in probably every episode. <laughs> I thought I could fight fire with a blowtorch. You know, I'm just going to, you know, he who's loudest last wins. And that was enabling. That fed her disease. Because, mm-hmm. again, her disease thrived on you know, all those negative things that justified her behavior, her misbehavior, her drinking. Mm -hmm. And she used to say it, you are my trigger. You know, she would blame me for her drinking. Uh, Someone once told me, Eric, you know, the only way that you can cause her to drink is if you duct taped her down, pried open her jaw and poured it down her throat. Okay. (laughs) So stop with that. Yeah. But I, I, I was blamed, and I bought into it. Mm. But you know that still didn't resolve my desire to engage. You know, pick up the rope, take the bait, whatever you want to call it. I would engage, and that would perpetuate the the misbehavior, and also just you know make me crazy. And certainly, the furthest thing from having peace of mind because I was. A, willing participant in this toxic dance. That's kind of what it meant to me. Yeah. Like I said, I did I did buy alcohol because she would be sitting at home and she'd run out and she'd say, could you go buy me another bottle of wine? And my thought was, well, if I say no, 
she's going to get in the car and drive to the store and that's, you know, she could get hurt. She could hurt somebody. Uh, so I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to prevent that from happening. I'm going to prevent this possible danger by, you know, buying, buying the wine or I would be shopping and she'd say, you know, can you pick up a couple? Of, I mean, there was never enough. So even if I went shopping and had bought a whole case of wine, it would be gone. There was not really a planning ahead. It was more of a, oh, I'm going to prevent this bad thing from happening. I did learn that there were times when I could take that too far. And, and I've talked about the, the time when we were on vacation and I managed to arrange it. So there wasn't any alcohol and she started suffering withdrawal symptoms and it was scary and made basically the whole next day, very unpleasant for the whole family. And so I had to learn that in context. Like, I think that was, I was going the other way. I was trying to control rather than like just letting her do what she was going to do, not getting in the way I was getting in the way of in the, in sort of the wrong way something anyway. But yeah, I, I started to hear about enabling and the, the definition that I heard that stuck with me was, the person who was my sponsor early in the program would say several times, but when I heard this, I thought, oh, okay, that I can, I can grab that one is getting between somebody and the consequences of their actions. And we've sort of said that before, but that was the definition that I first heard that stuck with me. Like, am I getting between my loved one and the consequences of her actions? And that's the things like calling in sick to work running down to the store and buying a bottle of wine because, damn, she didn't have quite enough. Where, of course, when my thought was, my fear was she's going to get in the car and drive. And the the reality of the situation might be, well, she'd just be unhappy. Okay. Maybe she wouldn't actually have enough energy to get up and drive. But I don't know because my mind always went to the, the worst possible scenario. So you have, you said you have a reading that you wanted to share from Psychology Today. Yeah, and just to follow on what you just were talking about, you know, I, I guess my version of that, I mean, I would never go buy her alcohol. The feeling I had was, you know, this walking on eggshells thing. You know, I didn't want to make her angry because anger is, again, you know, one of the fertilizers, you know, for her disease, uh, for the alcoholic. I mean, they thrive on anger. It, it fuels their, I don't know, justification of their behavior. So, I mean, this this happened only a week ago with my daughter, and I would make excuses. You know, that is my other version of enabling, was to make excuses. She's not feeling well. You know, I'd tell my daughter she's not feeling well. She's drunk. I mean, let's call it what it is. I didn't have boundaries. I didn't know how to detach with love, except, you know, to detach with a hacksaw, with an axe, you know. I would, you know, get in the car and take the kids at two in the morning. That to me was just enabling her rage. You know, she was a raging alcoholic. Her anger and rage was fueled by, you know, my lack of a, of, of a fully vetted toolkit. You know, mm-hmm. I only, as you've said, and I've used many times, which I love, is that, you know, back then my only tool was a hammer. Right? And when you only yeah. have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, yeah I, I enabled by not having any other choices but to react. And now I think to, to combat that, I, uh, you know, as we said in the last episode, I, I uh, imagine a pause button on my wrist, you know, <laughs> if I'm, I've, and I've considered going to get that tattoo. I actually have put the pause tattoo mm-hmm. right on my wrist. 
so that I don't enable, you know, the, and fuel the disease. So that, uh, that was my takeaway from your last share. Okay. So psychology today reading. Yeah. So let's see. Where's that? Yeah. This, uh, is also a really good reading. It's long, but I'll, I'm going to try to just summarize a couple things. Actually, it's not that's a page. The Anatomy of Addiction. Are you empowering or enabling relationships relating to the family dynamic? And the first paragraph reads, The desire to help others, especially those who mean the most to us, is one of the noblest of human instincts. Parents want to help children succeed in school. Spouses want to help each other solve the problems that life throws at them. Friends want to help each other at work or in their personal relationships. Unfortunately, though, this well-meaning impulse can backfire tragically when addiction is part of the equation. In one sense, enabling has the same meaning as empowering. It means lending a hand to help people accomplish things that they could not do by themselves. More recently, however, it has developed a specialized meaning of offering help that perpetuates rather than solves a problem. A parent who allows a child to stay home from school because he hasn't studied for a test is enabling irresponsibility. The spouse who makes excuses for his hungover partner is enabling alcohol abuse. The friend who lends money to a drug addict so he won't be forced to steal, quote, is enabling that addiction. You know, the next two paragraphs are great, but the bullet points at the bottom are just kind of a really good summary. Oh, yeah, I clipped those. Those are good. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're right out of our readers and program. And So she asks, you know, here are some questions to ask yourself when considering whether you are an enabler. Do you often ignore unacceptable behavior? Uh, check. Do you find yourself <laughs> resenting the responsibilities you take on? Uh, yep. Do you constantly put your own needs and desires aside in order to help someone else? You do. Do you have trouble expressing your own emotions, mm-hmm. feelings, episode, whatever? Do you feel fearful that not doing something will cause a blow up, making that person leave you or even result in violence? I just talked about that. You know, I was fearful about anger and rage. Do you ever lie to cover for someone's mistakes? Do you consistently assign blame for problems to other people rather than the one who is really responsible? Yep. Do you continue to offer help when it is never appreciated or acknowledged? You think? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, almost all of them, you know, before program. Did them all. Negative results. Just perpetuated the problem. Yep. Indeed. Indeed. Now, I'm going to put that... uh I think I'm going to put that bullet list into the show notes at therecovery.show slash 261. So if you didn't take notes while Eric was talking, you can go read them there. <laughs> and and actually, there's a another reading you found, an enabling fact sheet. What is enabling from the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation? Oh. And it's got a list of enabling behavior or characteristics. This is more like be- characteristics of enabling behavior. Mm-hmm. It says, Enabling behavior protects the addict from the natural consequences of his behavior. So, check, got that one. Keeps secrets about the addict's behavior from others in order to keep peace. Well, personally, check. Makes excuses for the addict's behavior. Check. Bails the addicts out of trouble. Maybe. Pays debts, fixes tickets, hires lawyers, and provides jobs. So, Check, 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 check. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> for my daughter. Blames others for the addicted person's behaviors, friends, teachers, employers, family, and self. Eh, 
maybe. I, I think I think that I definitely had a had a resentment for like her boss at work was apparently a real B, and uh, and so I was like, well, if that person wasn't so nasty, then you know she would she wouldn't have to drink or something. I don't know. Sees the problem as a result of something else: shyness, adolescence, loneliness, broken home, ADHD, or another illness. Avoids the addict in order to keep peace. I've done that. Gives money that is undeserved or unearned. Well, I don't know. Does buying booze count? Attempts to control that which is not within the enabler's ability to control. Okay. Whoa. Check, 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 check. I needed to control everything that really, a lot of things were, you know, how could I control the amount of wine that was going down her throat, right? That was what I wanted to do. Um, Yeah. Makes threats that have no follow through or consistency. Um, Check. Caretakes the addicted person by doing what she is expected to do for herself. Check. So, yeah, that's a nice little checklist. I think I'm going to put that one in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot. There's a lot of good ones. This this is from through an Al-Anon filter, and then we'll get back to some conference stuff. But this is Al-Anon. Um, helping or enabling. This is Wednesday, June 6, 2012, from through an Al-Anon filter. The title is Helping or Enabling. And that's really the crux of what I found this issue so hard to to, to kind of get to grips with my whole, you know, discussion, our whole episode on consequences, whether it was about this, you know, am I helping or enabling? It's a fine line. But this one says, how do I know the difference between helping my alcoholic and enabling them? Dictionary defines enables to make possible or easy. I made excuses. I explained him to family and friends. I did it because I was fearful of the consequences and because I wanted to be a good wife, husband. Mm-hmm. And then I just highlighted some stuff. I can still have some difficulty distinguishing between helping and enabling, especially when I'm asked to, quote, do a favor. And either I forget to say, I'll get back to you on that, or let me think about that, you know, neutral response. Mm -hmm. Because the person asking the favor is pressuring me for an immediate answer, or because I'm, quote, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When I'm vulnerable... I'm less likely to resist manipulation because I don't have the energy to stand my ground against repeated verbal pressure. That's when I need to remove myself by leaving the room, sometimes the house, even if all I do is wander outside to look at my garden. You know, and the next, I'll just quickly, for me, enabling has almost always been driven by fear. Fear of financial insecurity, fear of what others might think, fear of the future, fear of what might happen. At some point in my recovery, I found that I can ask to have my fear removed, and it will be, as long as I'm willing to also let go of the coping mechanism which have risen around that fear and learn a new way to be. Really good. Really good stuff. Yep. Which brings us, I think, to the question of, all right, well, now we kind of maybe understand what it is. What are tools we can use? How can we move into supporting, empowering, rather than enabling? How can we be constructive rather than destructive in in our behavior? And I think you found a reading in the book, In All Our Affairs, that probably fits here. Uh, Yeah. Before I even read it, you know, for me, the tools are... The, the tools are all of them. I mean, it's saying no when uh, I, I, you know, and the answer to why is because I don't want to, you know, <laughs> setting healthy boundaries, uh, detaching with love. I think the antidote for enabling is use of this program, use of the tools and knowing and having the clarity. I guess that's where it, it really is. 
to know what is acceptable or unacceptable behavior and what is mine or not mine. And I shared this and two or three people commented about it. And my sponsor routinely reminds me when, well, first of all, when in doubt, don't. Okay. And if, if uh, yeah, yeah. When in doubt, don't wait, halt, you know, use the acronyms, think and try to filter. Then when, if I do, if I'm, if I'm able to hit the pause button that shortly may be tattooed on my wrist, if I'm able to hit that pause button, take the Ellen on pause, then filter it through the serenity prayer. What is mine? What is not mine? Do I know the difference? And then decide a response, not a reaction. My enabling was reacting, picking up the rope, taking a bait, all that stuff I, I talked about earlier. So this reading, In All Our Affairs, Making Crisis Work for You, is on page 76, and it's uh, Reflections on Responsibility and Detachment is the title of the chapter. The first section is Choosing Not to Enable. The other day, my husband and I had to face our alcoholic son and tell him that we could no longer enable him to continue as he was. He had lost another job. His wife was taking their new baby to her parents' home in another state, and yet he was not any closer to reaching for help. This time, he would have to help himself. Probably the hardest thing I have ever done was turn away from this young person to whom I gave life. To see that sad, lost look in his beautiful eyes and the sag of his broad shoulders. To stand by and watch him walk away with that slow, shuffling gait was like tearing out a part of me. We realized that the help we were giving him was actually only giving him the means to continue his addiction. I said, quote, thy will be done, God. Even though I knew in my heart I did not necessarily want his will done, I wanted my son back, healthy and strong. Alanon's first step reminds me that regardless of what I want or don't want, I am powerless over my son. If I must turn him loose to hold him, then with God's help and the support from Alanon, I can, quote, let go and let God. I can learn to detach with love without feeling that I am deserting him. Yeah, pretty good reading. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's the whole idea. What, what is helping? What is not? Do I know the difference? And that comes only from, you know, really working this program to get that clarity and that pause to say, is this mine? Do I got a dog in this fight? Mm -hmm. Usually the answer is no, and I can use a tool. Then I need to pick up a tool. What is it? Detachment, boundaries, saying no, saying what I mean without saying it mean. Often just a neutral response. Walking away is not enabling. You know, again, my particular addict, uh, alcoholic, you know, her disease wanted to enable me into a fight, you know, and that fed it. And I can't say that enough. When I finally learned, you know, that I got no dog in this fight, this is your problem, I was able to detach with love and say, you know, let's talk another time and then walk away, mm -hmm. you know. And, and if I had to get in the car and go away, because my alcoholic was a provoker, I couldn't walk away if I was in the house or even outside. She'd follow me, <laughs> you know. I couldn't get away. So it was a very difficult situation with two young daughters in the house to get away from and, you know, leave them. You know, one of my 
the reason I selected my sponsor, who's been mine for sponsor for five or six years now, was that he was in a very similar situation, and he had to leave his children with his active alcoholic to save himself. And boy, did I have trouble mm. reconciling that, you know? Mm-hmm. How, you know, he said, I had to save myself first. You know, going back to step one, you know, and, and what do we learn in this program? You need to save yourself first, and then you can help other people. So now, I don't enable bad behavior because I have a full set of tools that allow me to not engage, allow me to respond neutrally or not at all, and to not react. Because reacting to addict and alcoholic behavior, or even the behavior of people on the street, on the road, in the market, in line at the grocery store, I can choose not to engage uh, to protect the peace of mind and serenity I've worked so hard to find with this program. And that enables me to live a more peaceful day, to maintain my serenity, have peace of mind. That's the positive aspect of enabling Mm-hmm. That when we use these tools, we enable ourselves to stay within our program and live between the highs and lows, which is where I'd like to I'd like to stay. Yeah, between the highs and lows. Yeah, you said a lot of good stuff there. I've been filling out my bullet list of of how how can we distinguish between supporting, helping, and enabling. And the first thing that I had in there is looking at our motivation. And I mean, for me, that is again, that's one of the key things that I've learned in recovery is whenever I'm thinking about doing something, saying something, if I can ask, what's my motivation? What is my motive here? That often helps me to understand whether, yeah, this is something I should do or shouldn't, right? What are my expectations and fears? Is the, uh, that reading from the Through an Allen on Filter blog said, and I actually copied this out. For me, enabling has almost always been driven by fear. Fear of financial insecurity, fear of what others may think, fear of the future, fear of, of harm. I added fear of harm because that was that was where I was. And so looking at what am I fearing here, what am I expecting here, can also help me to say, oh, eh, maybe just not, I should not do this. But let go and let God. I think you touched on that one, or the one of the readings touched on that. You know, yeah, the the reading from uh, in all our affairs. She said, uh, "You know, Thy will be done." That's like going like God. How important is it? Is another question I can ask. Like, is this really an important thing to do or not? Well, I use that one a lot. That one's been good for me. You said, "Wait and think." Wait is why am I talking? Is that right? Yep. Think is it thoughtful, honest, intelligent, necessary, and kind? Yeah, lots of good stuff there. Yeah, more. I mean, Q-tip comes to mind. Quit taking it personally. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I took every attack personally. I finally realized this is not her. This is her disease. And when I take it personally, I engage. And engaging enables. It enables her to continue in that behavior and justify her behavior. Look, you know, I, it doesn't matter who started it, but where the, the way it has always ended was in both people completely dysfunctional and her justifying her behavior because of it. That, to me, is enabling. Yep. You found a, a reading in the book, How Al-Anon Works, which I like to pull in because, again, it touches on this how we change our attitudes, how I can change my attitude about the things that might lead me to enabling or understanding where I was enabling, because sometimes that's really not obvious until sometimes much later. 
This is from the book, How Al-Anon Works. It's in uh, one of the chapters in the back of the book, chapter 26, titled, A Mother Let's Go and Let's God. This is towards the end of that story. I don't know exactly what page it would be on in the book because I'm looking at my Kindle edition. Despite her rocky start at the halfway house, my daughter eventually chose recovery. I did my best to let her know that I love and support her and to help her only when she wanted it. For example, my husband and I agreed to support our daughter through college, but only if she wanted to go. She chose to attend a local junior college and then spent a year away at a university. We had to work hard at detaching during that year, for we had reason to doubt that she was attending her AA meetings and her grades were beginning to drop. We knew that we were powerless over the drinking, but once again, the elusive question of enabling came up. And you highlighted that phrase, elusive question of enabling. There's the word. Oh, man. Yeah, because it is it's a very elusive question sometimes. And sh- and so the reading continues. Was it enabling to support her through school if she wasn't living up to her end of the deal? We realized that we hadn't really agreed upon what her responsibility was. So the three of us sat down and discussed it. And when we reached an agreement, we drew up a contract. She agreed to keep her grades above a certain level, and we agreed to support her financially as long as she did. Whether or not she drank was her business and did not enter into the discussion. I'm like, that's brilliant, right? Focus on the behavior that you care about. In this case, they're paying for her to go to college. They want her to actually get benefit from it, right? And the measurement of that, oh man, this comes so much back to what's going on at work right now, but the measurement of that is... Grades. That's it's not a perfect measure. We all know that, right? Um, but that's how they agreed to measure whether she was getting benefit from her college education. And they said, "We'll continue to pay for it as long as you're getting benefit by this measure." And the next paragraph goes on to say, "By the end of the year, our daughter's grades had dropped below the point we had agreed upon. So we ended our financial support of her education. I was extremely upset. How could she earn a decent living with just a high school diploma?" That night, my husband and I went to a movie. I sat in the darkened theater and cried for her lost opportunity. When I looked back, I realized that I still had a finger in her life. Higher education was my dream, not hers. And that comes right into this question about expectations. So this mother expected, dreamed, that her daughter would get a higher education. Whether the daughter had the dream or not, the mother was trying to force her dream on her daughter. And was willing to step into enabling behavior in order to make that happen, but by using the program, didn't. Yeah, so so even today, now that she's been sober for several years and qualifies for financial aid, she hasn't returned to school, yet she has a good job with benefits and supports herself quite well. Yeah. (laughs) Things don't always turn out the way we want them to. But sometimes if we let go, they turn out in a way that we couldn't have seen. I mean, you've got in that one reading, you know, expectations, consequences, motives, choices, you know, the consequences that they made pretty clear boundaries for sure. Mm-hmm. Attachment, you know, the consequences is they weren't, they, they wouldn't continue to pay for something. And you know what? It, uh, it was their expectations. They set a consequence, you know, that their motives they thought were pure and intended, you know, and, enabling of good behavior they thought they could enable they thought they could empower 
good mm-hmm. behavior yeah. by their actions. Yeah. But it doesn't always work that way, especially as it said in one of the articles, when you throw the, you know, the disease into the equation. Right. It, you know, logical things sometimes just don't, more often than not, just don't follow a straight line. You know, they don't, you know, the, the A plus B equals a, a wrench. You know, (laughs) (laughs) A plus B equals, you know, an orange. It just doesn't always work that way. And it actually seldom does work that way at all. When, when you throw addiction and the disease into the equation, you got to just step back and rely. I need to step back, rely on these tools to get me through it. Knowing that the other person is suffering from something that skews their judgment. I have to be okay with that, you know? I have to be okay with that and not enable it. And coming back to our topic, I don't want to feed it, I know. And by feeding it, I make it worse, not only for them, but for me. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right. I think I want to close this segment with a reading from Courage to Change. This is February 1st, another enabling reading. I thought that if I stopped enabling the alcoholic in my life, the drinking would stop. When the drinking seemed to get worse instead of better, once again, I thought I had done something wrong. I was still trying to control alcoholism and its symptoms. Al-Anon helped me to learn that I am powerless. I cannot stop an alcoholic from drinking. If I choose to stop contributing to the problem, I do so because it seems to be the right thing to do, something that will help me feel better about myself. When I change my behavior, the behavior of those around me may also change, but there is no guarantee that it will change to my liking Today, I am learning to make choices because they are good for me and not because of the effects they might have on others. You know, I think that's one of the keys for me about learning to not want to enable by understanding that my enabling behavior was trying to control something that is not mine to control. And that when I let go of that, I feel better. Because I'm not frustrated, I'm not resentful, I'm not angry by trying to control something I can't control. I, uh, I'll just, if you don't mind, finish with a couple of quotes. I finally oh, yeah, found quotes, some, yeah. Yeah, I finally found a couple of good quotes, just three or four, but one or two are really good. The first, um, this, on this page, this is Pinterest, it's not uh, brainy quotes. Surprisingly, I could not find any of our versions of the word in brainy quotes. They were all the positive side of it. Really? Yeah. So this one is from Pinterest. Uh, helping is doing something for someone that he is not capable of doing for them himself. Enabling is doing for some someone things that he could and should be doing for himself. Pretty basic. You know, that's kind of where we started. And then don't let someone's irresponsibility become your responsibility. Like that one. Mm. I like this one too. This one I love as a version, a little turn on one of our sayings to the newcomer greeter in the newcomer greeting. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it, but I won't condone it. Condone. Love okay. That. Another scene. Yeah. Yep. Yep. As, as opposed to our, to what we can contribute, I won't condone. That speaks more to enabling. And this last one, <laughs> fact. If an addict is happy with you, you're probably enabling them. If an addict is mad at you, you're probably trying to save their life. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. All right. I had I had some trouble sort of finding songs for this episode, but I, I did finally find a, find a few. 
I know you found one, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The first one that, that popped for me is Circle the Drain by Katy Perry. And I have to admit that Katy Perry is not somebody I listen to a lot, but the little description that I found on the internet says she describes the tolls that her boyfriend's drug abuse problem has taken on their relationship spitefully and indignantly concludes that she isn't sticking around. But the lyrics in here, I want to be your lover, not your F mother, can't be your savior. I don't have the power. And right there, I want to be, you know, I'm, I can't be your mother. I can't be your savior. That talks to me about enabling behavior. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. Eric. This week, not surprisingly, the last two meetings I shared on Enabling. Uh, what I didn't realize is in my home group, which is Thursday mornings, uh, there wasn't, a, there was not a leader for a week ago Thursday. So I stepped up and, you know, chose Enabling, anticipating our podcast. And I got a lot of, yeah, as I, as I, um, as you do, uh, yes, uh, as I do, because I like to hear what other people have to say about it and filter that through and, and try to, reflect and share on it. And then uh, a week later at the same meeting, again, the leader said, well, I'm not really prepared. Does anyone have a topic? And of course, my stupid hand went up. I said, how about enabling? And we did it again. And then I realized from my notes in my little spiral book, and I had to make a 10-step amends because I said, I think I, we did this a week ago. And everybody went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's okay. <laughs> it was time. good. The sec- yeah, it was good the second time, too. And there were some different people in the room, so... But I did have to, uh, you know, do a quick 10-step, and I didn't want to be controlling or dominating. And then, uh, let's see, Saturday morning's meeting was pretty well attended. The topic was uh, losing, skipping uh, from me right now because I don't have my little notebook with me, but it was a good one, if I recall. It was on some slogans, letting go, and my God, I think. And then, uh, actually, Tuesday night, I went to our district meeting with all our group reps, uh, not that I'm currently a GR group rep, but that I am uh, running a workshop um, that I was voted in to run for our district because I wasn't at the meeting where they voted. Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> well, I, the thing was, I did it three years ago, and I did it. I did suggest, and I did say I'll step up, if, okay. but I can't make the meeting. So, yeah, they. Okay. Uh, I, right. I, I actually okay. wanted to do it. So they threw my name out and people voted and, and, uh, and so I'm running that and that has been, you know, uh, it's a fun project. It's a, it's a large project. So with all the groups, the way that worked was I sent out a flyer to our 20 or so groups in this district and with a series of possible topics and ask each group to check off three choices from a list of, you know, 20 or so topics, almost every one of which uh, you've done an episode on, or we've done an episode on, and then to count up the check marks and decide that uh, for a roundtable workshop afternoon for four and a half hours uh, at a beautiful facility nearby here in New Canaan, Connecticut. You know which five or so or six we would like to do a detail, you know, a workshop, you know, a roundtable workshop focused on that subject, and then rotate every twenty-five or thirty. 30 minutes, if you care to, to a different table. So not uh, surprisingly, the topics that were chosen are detachment, 
boundaries, fear and anger, grief and loss, meditation and prayer. And then I threw in public outreach just because I think it's important that at least there be a table there with that literature so we can, you know, practice our 12 step, which is carried a message. So that's been a big part of this week. I finalized the program after those decisions were made and started working to put together a committee, found a co-chair because apparently the feedback has been so good that it's looking like it's going to be north of 75 or 80 people. It might even go over a hundred people. So. Wow. It's become, yeah, become a sizable. Uh, it might even go more than that. I finally had to call the facility and say, you know, what is the maximum capacity right. of this of this room? You know, and I'm not sure how we'll turn people away. But so that's been a, a busy part of my recovery for this week. And, you know, as we say, uh, when I got busy, I got better. So that definitely keeps my mind focused on recovery and program and so that's been kind of my week, you know, daily meditation and prayer uh, and uh, some couple conversations with my sponsor and a sponsee or two. Let's see. So as far as meetings go this week, well, I, I recorded the last week's episode on Monday, so I already talked about the Sunday meeting. And it's Sunday morning, so I don't have a Sunday meeting yet. But uh, yesterday morning, I went to my step meeting. We were talking about step nine, and it was there was some good discussion around the table I'm trying to remember. Oh, I pulled in a question from the uh, reading from from the book Reaching for Personal Freedom. So this paragraph just really jumped out at me. And I was like, yeah, that's me. When I complained to my sponsor that my husband had not made amends to me, she suggested that I focus on my program, not his. When he finally made amends, I complained to her that he had not done it right. Again, she suggested that his program was none of my business. Instead, she asked me about the amends that I had made to my husband. Direct amends were difficult for me because I hated making amends. And I'm like, yep, check, check, check. Uh, you know, I didn't think she did it right. I really took a long time to be able to make amends to her. But what I've come to realize in the program is that we make amends for ourselves. We don't make amends for the other people. Okay? We make amends for ourselves to get ourselves straight with you know, our life to clean up our side of the street, as we often say. And so if my wife, when she made amends that I thought were insufficient, if that was enough for her, then she made it, she did it right. And for me, I had to do the amends that I had to do to make my side of the street right. And that took a lot longer and it was harder for me. So it was a good, it was a good meeting. And then in the afternoon, I went to an, uh, a speaker talk by you know a local Al-Anon who shared her experience, strength, and hope, and that also was good. And this particular uh, speaker series has a, a question period at the end, and there were some really thoughtful questions that she answered really thoughtfully. It was it was really a great a great talk. I'm glad I made it. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to go because also yesterday we had a welcome picnic at church for our minister who started last week, and. And these two events overlapped, but I went early to the welcome picnic and then left early so I could make it to the talk, and I'm really glad I did. In the rest of my life this week at work, I won't say stressful, but it has been busy. Uh, we we decided, my team decided, because we're working on this big project, and we had been, we were a little behind plan, uh, and, and there is, you know, a, a date goal, at least, on the project. There's not like a hard stop, but there is a goal that we're trying to make, and we were falling behind our plan for that date. And so we agreed to do 
what we call in in our company we call it engineering week which is where we take the week and we just focus on doing the development not we we cancel all the meetings that are not absolutely essential and i think for everybody except me that was all the meetings we get lunch brought in so we we're you know we're at our desks pretty much from when we get there in the morning to when we're when we leave in the evening i stayed late at least one evening not real late like maybe an hour because the the goal is not to like overwork the goal is not to push hard the the goal is to get as much work in as we can and we actually start out, we started on tuesday we're going to monday so the the week's not quite over in the 4 days we got 50% more work done than we normally get done in 5 days and so big success everybody's feeling really good about it and everybody's like yeah and we're not doing that next week <laughs> So, you know, this is something that you can do occasionally, but if you do it all the time, then you're going to burn out. Uh, so it was good. And I felt it was really good to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to work hard on this, but I'm not going to overwork. And we already agreed that we're going to do this again before and after the Thanksgiving week because people are taking time off and before and after the Christmas, New Year's weeks so that we don't slow down as a result of people taking vacation because, again, we don't want people to burn out. So if people want to take vacation, we're going to have people, we, we give people the ability to take vacation without feeling like they're letting the team down. So it was it was a good week and, and it really felt good to get a lot done. Yeah, and then we need to step back and go back to our regular pace so we don't burn out. Next week, I'll be hosting another Al-Anon member who will share her story. In two weeks... I'm going to be at a men's retreat from my church, and so won't be able to record a podcast that weekend. And the following weekend, I'm driving to visit my parents, and so won't be recording a podcast that weekend. I expect it. What I'll be giving you is two more steps from Mary Pearl T, probably steps two and three, because I just did step one. So you can look forward to that. So if you have thoughts about step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, go ahead and... and write or call with your thoughts, your experience, strength, and hope, or, you know, questions or experience, strength, and hope around enabling today's topic. And Eric, how can people do that? Thanks for asking, Spencer. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of enabling, or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. All the information that you just heard is available on our website, therecovery.show, at therecovery.show slash contact, the phone number, the voicemail button, the email address, other suggestions about how to contribute your voice to the show. We also have notes for each episode, and there's been some talk recently, some discussion from listeners about getting transcripts up there, and I'm happy to report that the first transcript is available now. Listeners who volunteered to uh, to help do the transcription, and the first one it's up is episode 249, where, hey, Eric, you and I, we talked about force and power. So if you go to therecovery.show slash 249, you will see that down near the 
bottom of the page, uh, before you get to the, the music videos, there's a link that says re- read a transcript of this episode. So if you are better with visual learning than, rather than audio learning, that is available to you now. And there's some more coming. People are working on them. It's, it's a lot of work, and I really, really appreciate the people who are doing it. So thanks for that. Yeah, okay. Song. Um, you suggested a song by Jason Mraz. Yes, this is a song called "A Beautiful Mess." How appropriate! Yeah, <laughs> there's a uh, wow. I mean, you know, I also look up. Uh, there's other websites that say like songmeanings.com, and that's kind of where, even though it's not directly referenced within here, one of the comments says in the section regarding song meaning, someone writes, "A man that opens his heart to someone like that because he loves her enables her to do just that to him." You know, pretty poignant. And some of the lyrics here, hey, what a beautiful mess this is. It's like picking up trash in dresses. Well, it kind of hurts when the kind of words you write kind of turn themselves into knives. And don't mind my nerve. You can call it fiction, because I like being submerged in your contradictions. Your comebacks are quick and probably have to do with your insecurities. There's no shame in being crazy, depending on how you take these words that paraphrasing this relationship we're staging. You know, uh, pretty deep, uh, but the point is somebody's just, you know, in such, you know, this reminds me of the saying that when I, you know, thought I could love my alcoholic sober, the therapist at one of the uh, family weeks says, you know, I love my wife, but I don't need her. And for some reason that popped into my head today as enabling. Mm-hmm. I can step back from the disease and still love the person. So. Absolutely. All right, got a little bit of uh, listener feedback this week. Actually, yesterday at the open talk, a person came up to me after the talk and said, hi, I'm so-and-so. You're Spencer, right? I think she said it in the other order. And this is a person who's been listening to the podcast and corresponding occasionally. And we had a nice chat uh, about program, about podcast. It was re- It's really nice to actually meet somebody who's listening to the podcast in the flesh and have a chance to just, just talk. Catherine sent a very short email. She says, I've been back listening to your episodes and you guys got me to my first meeting yesterday. Thank you. Congratulations, Catherine, on having the courage to walk into a meeting. And I'm glad that we could play some small part in that. Eric, can you read the email from Diana? Hello, my name is Diana from New Jersey. I've been attending meetings regularly for a little over a year. I gratefully found your podcast a day ago and have been listening to episodes while on lunch at work or in the car. This topic of denial hits so close to home for me. I'm in denial about needing a sponsor and using my phone list. My qualifier passed away end of June and I've been keeping myself busy with housework and friends so I don't have to be at home alone dwelling on the state of my life right now. I'm afraid that if I talk about things I will fall apart. Going to group meetings help because I don't have to share. I can just sit and take pieces from everyone's share. I'm working towards building confidence up to reach out to fellow members and others about the emotions swirling in my brain. How have you all worked up the confidence to reach out to others? So grateful to have found this community, Diana. 
I can identify with, with definitely identify with some of that. I'm afraid that if I talk about things, I will fall apart. And so what I just want to say is, wow, I mean, my experience, of, I cried in my first meeting, I cried in my first month of meetings, I think, that for me, an l meeting is a place where it's safe for me to fall apart. It's okay to fall apart. You know, we will love you. Whether you're blubbering and can't get two words out or whether you're just, you know, screaming in anger. I mean, whatever it is, we've been there. We understand and and uh, we will love you for it. But I also understand just sitting there and listening to other people share sometimes. <laughs> How did I work up the confidence? Just by watching people be vulnerable in the meeting, by talking about the pain that they were in, by talking, by, by crying, by screaming. Seeing that happen and seeing the acceptance is what, what you know, really enabled me to open up. I don't know, Eric, you have any thoughts there? Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, eight, nine years ago, I don't even remember. I can't tell you when I found myself crawling into my first meeting. It was such a blur. But I cried my way, like you, I cried my way through the first half a dozen meetings and blabbered out, you know, how do I do this? Who do I tell? Can I tell her? Does anybody talk to me? You know, cross-talked. I did everything wrong. You know, that was the first meeting. And then the second I calmed down, I at least listened a little and then a little more and a little more. And it was just about go, just keep coming back. The only thing that helped me was to keep coming. So I hope that helps. I, I don't know yeah. what else to say. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. you know, repetition makes for, you know, comfort. And when I started hearing my story from other people and in the readings over and over and over, I felt like I wasn't alone. And I felt more at ease and more accepted and loved. People would listen without comment, which felt safe. When I started to share is because I started feeling safe again. And I did not feel safe anywhere around my alcoholic. So this was a safe place. It was the right place to be. And I was among people that understood and they get it. No place else could I find that. So yeah. that's why I started being able to open up. Yeah, absolutely. We got a letter from Jessica where she shares some experience, strength, and hope, and also responds to a question from a listener about dealing with dry drunk. Hi, Spencer. My name is Jessica. I've been listening to your podcast for about two months now. A member of an online support group I am in recommended this podcast to me. It's been really useful in helping me find serenity during my day. I listen to your podcast while I'm driving, and it's become a part of my daily ritual. There's so much I'd like to say, but firstly, I want to say thank you for taking the time to do these podcasts. I also wish you and your family well during your mother's recovery. I'm a nurse and worked with the elderly for many years in a skilled nursing facility on not only our rehab floor, but also our dementia slash Alzheimer's unit as well. Working on the dementia unit taught me a lot of things, especially as a new nurse. It forced me to really pay attention to my approach to situations, what my body language is saying, as well as the way I listen and speak to others. I grew a lot, and the patience I learned I was able to apply to my life outside of work as well. It was a blessing and an honor to care for my patients and their families over those years. I know dementia has such an impact on the whole family, and it can be difficult to care for loved ones with it, especially when an injury comes into play and they find themselves in a facility for the first time separated from their loved ones. I find that playing music they enjoyed in their youth is very calming for them, as well as photos in their room to make it feel more homey. I hope that your mom is well enough to go back home soon. I'll just say, I do too. (laughs) As a single mom, I find it hard to go to meetings, so between these podcasts and my online support group, I have really been able to find support when I need it most. 
I went to my first Al-Anon meeting three years ago, and while I haven't been in a long time, I do try to read the literature when I can. I'm thankfully able to interact, share, and discuss with the members of my online group, and I find that very helpful. So I figured why not give it a go and try sharing a little with you and the listeners of your show. I am what you would call a double winner, although sometimes I feel like I won the jackpot. Over the years, I have found myself replacing habit after habit in my ever-shifting sobriety, whether it was excessive drinking, drug use, eating disorders, or self-harm. I will be done with one and move to another, only really coming to realize this recently. My biological father is an addict-slash-alcoholic who abandoned his children. My adopted father, who raised me, his entire family is full of addicts and alcoholics. While he never excessively drank, especially after the tragic death of his alcoholic brother and subsequent death of his alcoholic father, he had many characteristics of a dry drunk. So addiction is something that is ingrained into my being. It seems I also attract it, as every man I've ever dated has been an alcoholic, addict, or both. I haven't harmed myself in 13 years, haven't drank excessively or done drugs in seven, so I do consider these victories. Listening to your podcast has encouraged me to start looking into the help of OA, because I have found that I truly have never been in real recovery despite being clean. I've just been replacing vices for vices. I too was diagnosed as pre-diabetic not too long ago, and it really shook me up. I had turned to food for comfort after the traumatic birth of my daughter and her subsequent 30-day NICU stay. NICU is a neonatal intensive care unit. That's my explanation, Spencer here. I was prescribed painkillers after my emergency C-section and some heavy-duty anxiety pills as well. I couldn't sleep or function without them. I knew going back to drugs was not an option for me. I had been clean for three years by the time she was born. I knew the road I was on was a slippery one, and I worked very hard to wean myself off the meds that I was given to help with my PPD, PTSD from her birth. I've struggled with my weight and eating issues ever since. Getting the news about my A1C really put into perspective for me that I need to address the root cause head-on and learn to truly heal after all these years. I didn't realize that my comfort eating was really a problem until this. Despite the fact that it was clearly more frequently than just when I needed comfort, you don't become morbidly obese overnight either. I have shame for my behavior, eat in secret, etc. All the things addicts do with their addictions. I'm working on this issue now and hopefully soon I will be better able to manage my impulses. At the end of episode 252, I heard a message from a listener and wanted to respond if that's okay. Her message was about dry drunks, and unfortunately, my ex-fiancé spent a good chunk of time falling under that category. In between his active drinking times is when I actually first went to Al-Anon. He is the one who suggested I go in the first place. I'm very shy and was absolutely terrified to go to a meeting. I had no idea what to expect. They always say the hardest part is just getting through the door, and that couldn't have been more true for me. Several times I had planned to go and then blew it off at the last minute. Sometimes, even while driving up to the location, I would drive right by because my anxiety was so bad. Finally, after a particularly bad day, I went to my first meeting. I'm glad I finally mustered up the courage to go. I went to a couple of different meetings until I found some that I enjoyed. I found it difficult sometimes because I was always the youngest in the rooms. After listening to everyone speak, though, it became clear to me we still shared similar stories despite the age differences. When my ex-fiancé was in his dry drunk stage, he was still attending meetings, at least one a week, actually. He didn't have a sponsor that he really connected to, and I think that was a big hindrance in his recovery. He's an atheist, so finding someone of a like mindset wasn't easy for him, especially in a spiritual program. I found his dry drunk phase to be almost as difficult as his time actively drinking. He was short-tempered and angry, and just as unreliable as he was when drinking. With him constantly in between jobs, I found myself being the primary breadwinner and sole support system for our infant daughter with special needs. With this short fuse, I never knew when he was going to fly off the handle, or if something I did was going to trigger him into drinking again. 
I walked on eggshells for a very long time, trying to make his life easier in any and every way I could in order to avoid a conflict. As that was the only way I knew how to deal with the situation, it was what I learned growing up. I thought one of the best things we did was moving into my mom and stepfather's house to help us get back on our feet. I didn't realize that my built-in backup measures actually were making our relationship worse and allowing him to put his recovery on the back burner. I didn't realize how enabling the situation I created for him was. Hindsight is twenty twenty, right? With multiple other adults home when I worked at nighttime, he was able to skirt around responsibilities or dump them off entirely instead of having to deal with them himself. I got comfortable in his dry drunk face and assumed the worst was over, that his attitudes would pass and clear skies would be on the horizon. I got annoyed when he would ask to go to meetings a couple times a week because I felt he was using them as a means to avoid our home situation and not to work on himself. As someone who never attended NA, I didn't quite grasp how important those meetings were until I started Al-Anon. I wish I had found those meetings earlier so I was better equipped to set boundaries and realize the extent of my codependency issues. This statement was shared with me about dry drunks once, and it's so true. They say when you remove alcohol from the alcoholic, you're left with an ick, and dry drunks are definitely icky. (laughs) I hadn't heard that before. I like that. They may be sober, but there is no serenity in their lives. They are just as sick as an active alcoholic, if not more so, because they are under that false belief that they're better and have it all under control. Shortly after joining Al-Anon, we moved out of my mom's house and into an apartment. My ex's dry drunk behavior continued until he eventually started drinking again. I was crushed, still not having all the tools from the Al-Anon program. I felt like I had failed. Here I am, someone who makes people better for a living, and I couldn't fix the man I loved. Going back to Al-Anon and learning more ways to help myself, I began to try to live for me again. I started getting back into some hobbies that I enjoy. I spent some time looking for geocaches out on hikes instead of hidden liquor bottles in my basement. I picked back up quilting and crocheting, which do wonders to help occupy not only your hands but your mind, and force you to focus on what you're working on and not let your mind wander off. I had spent five years wrapped up in the chaos of my alcoholic home. I had lost myself again. I did eventually leave my ex about eight months after we moved into our apartment. For the first time in my life, I made my boundaries clear and held on to them. It was one of the most difficult things I ever did in my life, but I knew I had to give the situation over to God and make sure my daughter and myself were safe, that when he had begun to truly work his program, things would change, and they did. I'm happy to say that he is over two years sober now, fully participating in AA with a great sponsor and is now a great father to our daughter. While apart, we get along better now than we ever did before. I have realized, though, by watching his change, that I still have not found my serenity fully. I always had thought once he got sober, everything would be fine, without realizing all the personal wreckage I had neglected to clear. I'm not sure if there's a phrase that correlates in the NA world as dry drunk does to AA, but I'm definitely it. To the woman who brought up the topic of dry drunks, I would just say the best thing you can do is to get to a meeting, whether online, by phone, or in person. Build up your toolbox so you know how to get yourself through these situations. Take it one day at a time. Figure out what you will and will not tolerate. Find yourself some outside happiness so your boyfriend's behavior doesn't eat up too much of your joy. Detaching with love, they say. It's not easy to learn, but it's so worth it. Thank you for letting me ramble, Spencer. Thank you again for your podcast, which have brought me back towards my path of serenity. It works if we work it, right? So I'm going to get started working on me again. Peace and light, Jessica. Wow. There's a lot in there, Jessica. Thank you. I really appreciate your thoughts about the sort of similarity of the impact of dementia on the family to to alcoholism. And I also want to thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope around the, the dry drunk behavior that 
was in your life. Hopefully that will help the person who sent that question originally will be able to identify with some of that. And uh, thanks for, for, thanks for sharing. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Tony, Susan, Paula, and Mary did. And thank you again, Tony, Susan, Paula, and Mary. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. Thank you. Thank you for those of you who have done that. The book links that lead to Al-Anon, of course, we don't get a commission from that, and that's just fine because they support Al-Anon in the mission that we're all here to recover from. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening to us. We're here for you. The last song that I picked here by Reba McIntyre titled She Can't Save Him. (laughs) Here we go. She can hear his car as it pulls in the drive. She can whisper a prayer. Thank God he's alive. She can meet him at the door, catch him when he falls. She can even believe that it isn't his fault, but she can't save him. And that particularly that, that line about catching him when he falls. I mean, that's enabling, right? Let him fall because that and only that is the motivation that's going to lead to recovery. If there's no pain, there's no recovery. That's my experience. Anyway, I don't know anybody who comes into recovery because they're really happy about what's going on in their life. Everything's wonder. Everything's wonderful. I think I'll go to a meeting. (laughs) Well, actually, you know, I do do that also just to share, you know, when times go well, there's a lot of room for that in this program too. But yeah, we came in here because we were in pain. But that's sort of like graduate degree, Alanon, like celebrating the good stuff. Sure. I love the last line here. If you don't mind, I'll share on this and then finish with a quote that just seems perfect. And the water keeps pulling him down. She reaches for him as he pulls her in. She wakes just before she drowns. Wow. Mm, There's yeah. a, quote from, uh, a quote from Pinterest I was trying to find a spot for, and it seems like it's right here. This quote says, The worst thing is watching someone drown and not being able to convince them that they can save themselves by just standing up. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.